Hi, my name's Caitlin, and I'm on staff here at Ocean City Church, and I serve with our groundswell team and our kids team. Um, please stand for the reading of God's word. I said I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remain utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth, without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all of my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. All right. How's everybody doing? Everybody celebrating mom today? Yeah? No? No mom's here? Man, I got a little nervous. Yeah, I hope that's not where I'm headed today. Um, man, I tell you what, I love the Psalms and I love this series, just the idea that it's the language for the heart, soul, and mind. Um, you know, it, there's certain weeks and certain series and certain passages in Scripture um, I think you have to work a little bit. They, they are, they're all, you know, Scripture is always relevant. It's always valuable. Scripture says that about itself. No matter what we're doing, it doesn't return void. It's valuable for correcting uh, and teaching and rebuking and righteousness. It's, it's, it's always going to be helpful. But getting it on the ground sometimes in ancient texts can be difficult. But the Psalms, I feel like you just don't have to. Like, they're already there. As you hear, you know, David, who he wrote, you know, around half of the Psalms, he you know, just listening to him, I'm like, he could be me. I mean, I talked about that last week. I just like, as we walk through the, the valleys and the mountaintops of life, the way that the laments kind of enter us in the valley, the way the songs of praise and, you know, the, the glorifying of God when things are going really good, um, you kind of feel that. Like, it's easy for us. I mean, everybody can relate. Moms can relate. Everybody can relate. I mean, this passage in and of itself, I mean, you hear, you know, the, the, the burning, the, the frustration and the anger. I know moms can re relate to that. You know, you've gotten to that point, right? It's two in the morning. Please sleep. Why are you? I know you're happy. Jelly neck and bobbin. You know, the babies, you know, I know the people with the babies get it. And they're like, oh, my goodness, it's crazy. Um, but we, we relate, and there, there's an, a range of emotion in the Psalms. Like, you can feel it in this Psalm, just the range, as, as Caitlin was reading it, just, I mean, there's, it starts out with the anger, and then it kind of rolls into the sorrow and the anguish and the lament. I mean, there's, there's these phases and processes that happen throughout the Psalms. And across the landscape of all 150 Psalms, there is a range of emotions 
um, that goes into the hundreds. If you, if you name the different emotions and all of the different ways that we interact uh, with ourselves um, and with each other uh, and the way that we think and the way that our minds race and move around in relationship and through circumstances, the Psalms have it. Like they, it's, it's in here uh, in spades. And I just want to read through a list of these emotions as we kind of kick off today just to put us on this journey of looking about how you know, the Psalms get us aligned uh, with God, who is also emotional. We are image bearers of God, and He also goes through a range of emotions as well. The list of emotions you find in the book of Psalms. Listen to this. It's crazy. Loneliness. I am lonely and afflicted. Love. I love you. O Lord, my strength. Peace. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. All. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Sorrow. My life is spent with sorrow. Regret. I am sorry for my sin. Contrition. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Shame, shame has covered my face. Delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Joy, you have put more joy in my heart than they, when they, than they when they're, with their grain and the, when their wine abounds. Gladness, I will be glad and exult in you. Fear, serve the Lord with fear. Anger, be angry and do not sin. It goes, it goes on and on. You've got grief, you've got desire, you've got hope. Brokenheartedness is in there. Gratitude, pain. Confidence. It goes on and on. The emotions and the range of emotion in the book of Psalms is incredible. And that's why we talk about how the, the Psalms, in a beautiful way, give us a voice, give us language, not just for the heart, not just for the soul and who we are as Christians, but also for the mind, the way that God's created us physically and the way the brain works. I mean, it's an amazing gift that He's given us. And the beautiful thing that we said last week that hit me last week as I was studying in Psalm 27 is. Not only do I relate, like we, we talked last week about this idea of empathy, that one of the most healing things that you can get from another human being, this is in psychological world, if you study social psychology, they'll put at the very top of the list is empathy. This person gets me. They, they don't, they're not sympathizing going, that's, it just, it's, you're in the pit. I'm so sorry you're down there. It must be really crappy down there. Never been down there. No, empathy. I've been in the pit. I understand your pain. And this is the psalmist that's saying it. This is the psalmist that's saying it. But it's not just the psalmist, it's God. God is saying it. God understands. He is the suffering Savior, Jesus. He is the one that can empathize and sympathize with our pain, with our temptation, it says in Hebrews, that he's walked through things. We don't have a Savior or a high priest that doesn't understand our trouble and our sorrow. That's the Psalms. It's an indication for us that we can connect not just to another human being that wrote these, but this is God's word, that he connects us and he aligns our heart with the emotions that he's given us in ways that lead us to life and not to death. And certainly my emotions and your emotions have probably gotten the best of you at times. And especially in the culture that we live in, it is very easy to, to go off the deep end, and it affects our relationships, it affects our marriages, and it, it often affects the way that we carry the gospel to the world around us. You know, for me, um, a few weeks ago, actually it's probably a month or so ago, I was sitting on the back porch of a friend. Um, actually, it was a friend that I, I live with. I mean, you got to have good friends to, to live with them. Some of you know, since January 10th, because I know the exact day I moved out of my house, I have not lived in my house. I have not lived at home, um, and that has a certain effect on a human being. 
Um, and so I've got good friends in Pontevedra. I know I've made some fun of Pontevedra. I haven't really made fun of Pontevedra. Darren Vianger says I make fun of Pontevedra. I don't, I love Pontevedra. And now they've been the most just wonderful hosts. So if you're from Pontevedra, I love all you people. You're fantastic. Um, and it's great. I was sitting, looking at the marsh, you know, my friend's back porch, having great, you know, great food. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I was a little frustrated and I was on my phone. And the reason why, like I said, I've been out of my house since January and I love, I'm, some of you don't know this, some of you do, um, you know, it, I didn't ask for it and I'm, I shouldn't be complaining at all. We got picked to be on a, a HGTV show. So Glass Entertainment, HGTV, you've done an amazing job. I love you. Uh, but contractors, uh, I hate you. Um, and some of you might relate and maybe you're a contractor and you can email me. Um, and I'll find it next year in my spam box. But um, I, I had this, I mean, I didn't realize that the norm, like maybe it's just the norm. Like that's just, you know, what, what contractors do is lie. Um, but I didn't know that going into this. Like I thought that you're going to, you know, if it's this or we were doing this. And you, I literally was catching them in things that were not truthful um, and just thought, is this, are we serious? Um, can you t- I'm not bitter. Um, I'm, not, um, I, I'm not emotional over this. But anyway, I'm, I should have been in the best circumstance and situation, you know, you know, as all this was going on. But I, I'm on my phone. I should be enjoying my friends, sun setting on the marsh, like good food, good friends, having a great time. And I'm on my phone, of all things. I mean, 2022, come on. I'm just sitting there, and group texts. I mean, those are fun, right? That's the way to enjoy life is on a group text. And so I'm on a group text, and I'm texting. I finally have lost it. Like the pastor has, and, you know, if they were going to copy that and put it on the HGTV show, I probably would no longer be a pastor because I put things in the text that, uh, at the time, I thought, this is wise. I should say these things because I'm frustrated. And I was just dropping it on them, just my frustration with, all the, like, I had heard all the excuses, like, I know that the air ducts come from Turkey, and there's a war, you know, I, I just, I, I, I get it, maybe, um, and I just was on there, just firing bombs, and it was not good, I mean, the poor, there was a new project manager that was coming on, and all he saw was a number in the group text, he didn't even know I was the homeowner, and then he's, the old project manager's on there, and then he's, after my rant, and I sent, I ended it with, do better, period, um, um, and my kids said, you, you're not even supposed to put a period. Like, a period is emotional. I didn't know that it's like, that's like, oh, everybody knows you're really angry, Dad, with a period. I'm like, maybe the do-better made him think I was angry. Um, but it was just, and the poor guy, just the number. He goes, who is this? And the, the guy, the producer from Glass Entertainment goes, hey, Bob, welcome to the homeowner of 4027th Avenue North. Um, oh, it's terrible. Have you ever thought, you know, like get Gary to fire off an email, like you're, you're, you think it's a great idea and then you send it and you regret it? I mean, anybody done that? Like, oh, can I get that back? I didn't regret this one um, at all. I was just like, no, I was like, I was proud to send it. I was just like, bam. I was like, take that. Um, but then an hour goes by and then you're like, and then a day. And then you're like, did I really? And then your wife sees it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, and you know, needless to say, eventually I had to apologize. And I don't know that it's going to make my house get done any faster. Um, but I, I say all that to say there's a, a misalignment. There's something that happens, and it, and it happens with you see in this this psalm. You 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 see that there's 
him holding his tongue, and then you see why he is. You see that he's angry. There's something boiling. He uses the terms fire and burning as I meditate. Like there's something happening with people. And if you know anything about this psalm, what commentary says is that it's happening near the end of David's life, in the end of his reign. And things were still tumultuous. I mean, if you know David's story, it could be a Hollywood movie. Um, and it, doesn't, it never slows down. It gets to the end, and he's still got people stabbing him in the back. He's got political enemies. The northern and southern kingdom are already starting to stretch and separate in Israel. And he's with the, you know, the, the Judah portion in the, in the southern kingdom. And there's people. I mean, it's just all kinds of craziness going. And if you were to make a guess, because we don't know exactly when he wrote it, but you would look in the second Samuel chapter 20. So if you write that down, go read the story. And you see that Sheba's coming against them. And you've got all this stuff that's going on. Um, and he feels betrayed. He feels like the people that used to be loyal to him are no longer loyal. As a leader and as a king, it's, he's going through excruciating pain that's affecting even his health. So the dude is, he's angry. He's frustrated. And there's this thing that happens with, with anger that it's, David doesn't know the science behind it, but there is science behind when we're heightened. When we get in that place that I was in and that we see King David in here that he's trying to control there's something that actually physically happens in the body, and it physically happens in the brain. You're this, the, the area of the hippocampus and one of the areas, the amygdala, starts to take over. It gets to a rudimentary part of human existence in the way that we think. It starts to, and this is what it literally does. It ignores the, the stuff that's happening in the cortex, specifically the, the frontal cortex, which you guys don't, won't know about until you're 25. You don't really think. Um, I'm kidding. I love you all. You're here for mom. That was a smart move. Um, but, you know, you think about one minute in front of the next, uh, you know, no future planning. When you're 25, cerebral cortex and the frontal lobe will actually develop, and then you'll actually make good decisions. Until then, listen to these people right here. Um, I'm kidding. I love them. They're going to kill me later, especially my kids. But you, the amygdala takes over, and the hippocampus, and all this area that's, that's controlling the rudimentary fight, flight, and freeze responses. And guess what it does? It ignores rationale. It just does the immediate. It literally overrides anything that you would do to go, hmm, maybe that's not such a good idea. It just takes that out of the, out of the deal. And that's what happened this, when, when you're heightened. When, when anger enters into the framework in, in a heightened reactionary sense, then all of a sudden rationale is gone. And guess what? We need that. We need to, it's, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful in our marriages. It's helpful in our friendships and our relationships. I mean, have you ever gotten in the middle of a, 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 like a, just a fight, just an anger fight where you, I, I'm right about this, you're wrong about this, and it just gets, and it's about dinner. I mean, I just could be about the stupidest thing ever. And you say something to your spouse or to a friend or somebody around you that you didn't mean. Anybody? Anybody done that? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the sinful one that needs to repent today, and you guys are all good. But I've done it. And then you go back an hour later, two hours later, and you're like, baby, I have no idea where that word came from, it just formed out of space. I have no idea how I said that. It's part of it is a, and I'll, you can use that excuse in your next fight. Baby, my amygdala is killing me. Um, but it, it'll, it'll happen. And it's amazing that God was leading us to life and away from death in this ancient text. His word is timeless. It's already doing things that we, we've just found out in science um, are happening in the brain, God was like, hey, I just want to let you know because I created all you jokers. You got to watch out for anger because it's going to get on you and it's going to make you say and do things that will ruin and wreck your life. And so last week we talked about this idea of 
you know, our tendency to squash feelings. And I just want to say this up front. The very beginning of this psalm, wisely, David is not speaking. He's not, he's squashing something. But he's internalizing something and then expressing it. So there's something different going on here. And I want to explain it as we go through this particular psalm. So what we're going to do is we're going to follow the transitions of the psalmist in these six phases through Psalm 39. Um, and you could go through any psalm and there'd be some different phases. And this will be helpful because next week we're going we're gonna to dig into what it would look like to write your own psalm, which I think will be very... Don't miss next week. It's going to be super fun, super cool. But we're going to look at these six phases of kind of where the psalmist goes in his interaction with this psalm and his interaction with God. So starting in verse 1, if you got your text, Psalm 39... King David says, I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. So he's, he's, he knows where he's at. Again, he's obviously amongst a bunch of people that he doesn't necessarily trust anymore. And it's very painful. And he's made a decision later in his life. That's why a lot of the, the people that write commentaries think it's later in his life. Because he's using a lot of wisdom in his interaction. In his previous years, David would have blown up or done something stupid or look at naked people on a rooftop. Here he's being a little bit smarter. And he's saying, you know what, this is probably not the place I need to, to talk. He says, I'll put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. And when he's talking about the wicked, I'm assuming, again, I, I want to tell you it's an assumption, that it's this thing that's going on, this split of the kingdom that, that's happening years and years before it actually does split with people that want to take over, people want to um, rebel against David and his kingdom. And he says, but my anguish increased. He had literally physical pain over these betrayals. And he says, my heart grew hot within me. And while I meditated, the fire burned. So he's saying, you know, I was quiet, but inside there's a war going on. Inside, I am absolutely about to explode. And again, he's doing something that's kind of, kind of wise here. He's, he's saying, okay, this isn't the time for me to pull out the phone and text him back. This isn't the time to react. It would be unwise in the state that I'm in, and with this fire, this heightened state that I'm in, for me to say anything. I might say something that will be tragic or will ruin something. It's, these aren't, this isn't the safe place. This isn't the place that I should do it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says it this way in his commentary on Psalm 39. He says this right about these three verses. He says, he talks about people. He's, not, he's talking about the people in this text that David is frustrated with, but he's also talking about us and the people that we live life around because we're not always around people that are awesome. We're not always around people that have our best interests at heart. We're not always around people that love Jesus. They're broken and fallen, and there's a lot of things that, that can happen at any time in the relationships that we have. So he's saying, hey, look, they have such quick ears, he says, and they are so ready to misinterpret and misrepresent our words. He's speaking of Christians. And if they can find one word awry, they will straightway preach a long sermon over it. So let us muzzle our mouths while they are near. Or let's just get on Facebook and put something cool there. That'll be smart. Um, no, he's saying, look, we, we, people will use your words against you. Be careful how you, how you talk. Be careful being in a heightened state in this you're going to say something, and it's going to be the, your demise. I mean, it's a good word to preachers in, in terms of what you say and how you say it, allowing what's happening and going on with you personally or what's happening and going on you know, politically in the world, making statements and, and exploding and making statements that people will use against the church, will use against Christians in general. 
says, the ill words of Christians often make texts for sinners or Instagram posts. And thus, God is blasphemed out of the mouths of his own beloved children. And that's happened to me, where I feel like I've, I've not done, you know, if, I, if I'm here to carry the, the, the kingdom, kingdom of God forward, if God has put us all in that place, we are plan A, all of us, not me and, you know, staff people, but we're all plan A in carrying the gospel to a fallen and broken world. And I've not helped the cause many times in heightened states because said things that were, you know, not, not really going to make anybody want to be a Christian or follow Jesus. He says, let it not be so with any of you, beloved. I think that's so true and such wisdom as we look at this psalm. Because David here was wise. And I want you to go through these six phases. And the first one, he kept quiet. Again, Last week we talked about this idea that you can't keep quiet. It wasn't like false self-discipline. Like that's what the Stoics did in Paul's time. They were all like, we're not going to, you know, we've got everything under control. No matter what's happening circumstantially around me, I'm not going to be sad. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be moved one way or the other or swayed. I'm a Stoic. That's why the term is used that way. That's, that's a prideful, that's a, that's a discipline. That's, that's where things begin to boil underneath. Somebody that, that sticks in that lane of Stoicism, they, it just begins to... And, and then all of a sudden there's the emotional explosion, the, you know, the, the inappropriate response to something small like we talked about last week because of all the, the stacking and the piling of things that you've never really emotionally let the steam out of. You've got to let the balloon go every once in a while. But he, in this instance, there was wisdom in holding his tongue. He was saying, you know, this is, and this is a good one for the outward. I'm an outward processor, like I think, you know, by talking. And that's not always super helpful. At least my wife says that. I don't know why. Can't figure it out. Um, and then, then I'm a preacher. I mean, imagine that. Um, but it's, you got to think about what you say. It's interesting as you read this text, you got to think that James has read Psalm 39. And he was pointing the church to read Psalm 39 and see the wisdom in, in, in Psalms and Proverbs. Because listen to what he says. He says, the tongue also is a fire. He uses similar terminology. A world of evil among the parts of the body. I mean, he's coming against the tongue. It's like the tongue will ruin your life. You will burn things down with your tongue. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire. I mean, I love his language. He does not mince words. And is itself set on fire by hell. Like, I mean, he's talking about you can absolutely blow up your life with the tongue. You can lift someone up. You can say something amazing about somebody. You can make somebody feel better about themselves than about you because of where God's placed you and the gospel working through you. But you can also destroy someone and tear someone down in an instant. You can ruin your own world in an instant with your tongue. I mean, James continues to say, he says, look, there's boats. He says, isn't it amazing that an entire ship, an entire boat is steered by this tiny little rudder? That's the tongue. It will steer you the right direction and absolutely steer you the wrong direction. So he's warning, he's saying, be careful about how you use it. Don't, don't react in the heightened state. That's what the tongue will do. Don't lose control of your limbic system. He didn't really say that, but that's what he's saying. It's going to be, something's going to overtake it. That rational mind is going to be overtaken in your heightened state. Be careful how you speak. But, but David doesn't leave it there. So first he keeps quiet and he's smart around people that aren't safe. And I think for us, that's a smart thing. Like you, there's certain people, you don't want to be bleeding on everybody about everything that's going on in your life emotionally. One, some of us just don't want to hear it. 
Um, I'm kidding. Some of us, we, we need to hear it. And I think that's what's beautiful about the church. We're broken. We're not a perfect place, but because Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. We are one people together under the blood of Christ. We've become one. We should be a safe place. And I'm not saying the church is always safe and that you can't get hurt here. People have hurt each other here. Relationships have been hurt inside the walls of the church. But this is a safe place to heal before Jesus as Jesus unites the church and pulls us together by us. But when we actually do communion, to think about that, that this should be the place where we don't have to stay quiet, where we can come to our small group, to our city group, to the people that we're in a fight club with and say, this is what was happening to me at work. This is what people were saying about me. And maybe they're right do you think it's right? This is what's making my heart break. This is what's happening in my marriage. This is what's happening in my school. This is what's happening with the people around me. This is, this is my breakup in a nutshell and how heartbreaking it was. The church should be a safe place for that. Sometimes it, there's not. There's people that will use your words against you. But we should be a soft landing. We should be the physical representation of the unending ocean of grace that Jesus died for. That's what we are. We have the hope of glory in our chest by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are the safe people in which we should be able to express emotion. So he goes on and he does express his emotion. He kept quiet with those people. It says, and then he spoke with his tongue. So number two, he brought his anger and frustration to God. This whole psalm is something he's laying before God. He brought his anger and frustration before God. He didn't just ignore it. He didn't push it down. He didn't leave it there. He knew that he needed to, to, to talk about it. You know, some people, you know, well, sometimes some people say, well, I just don't get emotional. I don't, I, I've done this when we've talked about idolatry in small groups before. And you usually deal with, you talk about anger. Like it's always a good indicator of idolatry. When you get angry, it's usually because somebody has taken something from you. Not always physically. Sometimes it is. Like, you took my stuff and I'm angry. But it's usually your pride. Somebody took your pride. It's usually about what, what you thought was going to save you or make you feel better about yourself or, you know, you're a, you know the thing that, that made you feel special or approved of. Somebody else stomped on it and you got angry. That's why me and my wife, our questions are often, what made you angry in that moment? It's because we're, you know, evaluating. We like to communicate with one another. It's a good thing. And it's usually about my anger. Um, and it, she's asking me, you know, what made you angry? And we get down to the, it's not just the, the remote was in the wrong place. It's usually something below that remote, you know, that's really made me angry. Um, and it's a good indicator of idolatry. It's one of those emotions. But some people don't think, they're like, I, I don't get, I've done studies with people. They're like, I don't get angry. And you say, well, let's reward. Do you, do you ever get frustrated or irritated? Like, oh yeah, all the time, all the time. I'm like, okay, let's just say that's anger. Um, and we'll go there. But if you look at it, you've got it when you, when you're, the way that he brings his anger and frustration to God, he names it. If you go and you look at verse three, he says, my heart grew hot within me. He understood literally what's going on in his body. I know this sounds a little bit like self-care and you're, you know, you're like probably weirded out. Don't be, because it's in the Bible and this is absolutely true. He's naming it and talking about, hey, look, I felt hot. I was heightened. I, I felt it was hot within me. When I meditated, I was trying to get to a good space but a fire burned, like something, my hands were hot, my legs, something was burning. The anger was causing me to physically feel heat. And what's interesting that this is an ancient text and psychologists and social psychologists are just realizing that that's actually an important thing, to name your emotions. Like, not to, like sometimes we don't even 
think about our emotions, but to think about why I got angry and what was I feeling in my body when I got angry. I'm like, why is that helpful? I don't know, but psychologists think it's a really good thing. Listen to this. When we listen to the wisdom of our emotions, we, are, we offer ourselves a gift through noticing, naming, and responding. Naming? What's he doing? He's naming. David is naming. Through noticing, naming, and responding to the sensations in our bodies, we allow our emotions to undergo the natural processes and cycles rather than keeping them stuck, festering inside. Over time, with practice, we can engage with life in a more resilient, authentic, and adaptive way. This is psychology today. And she goes on and says this, and I love this. Emotions are the locomotive of our life. They're important. When we feel them, we move forward. In other words, when we, we recognize, okay, this is what's going on with me, we move forward. When we suppress them, we get stuck. And I say that to say, you know, go get your copy of Psychology Today. That's great. No, I'm impressed and amazed that an ancient text that God has been saying this long before really smart people came along and said, you know what, it's actually good to talk about your emotions. And the psalmist is going, really? We wrote 150 of these bad boys. Get in touch with your emotions to talk about it, to put language of, onto the heart and the soul and the mind. It is a good thing. It's cathartic. And it puts us in a position as followers of Jesus to carry the gospel effectively without being pulled into the traps of this world. And I feel like we're, there's traps everywhere right now for us to get drawn into conversations, to get drawn into anger, to get drawn into politics, to get drawn into places that are not going to carry the beacon of the light of Jesus to the ends of the earth. They're just going to pull us with our tongue down the road that everybody else is down. Sometimes we think about separating ourselves from the world. We think about, here's the sinful people and here's the good people. But how about, here's the people that have been pulled in and destroy one another with anger in their tongue. And here's a group of people, for whatever reason, have, they, have a, they have a grip on their emotions, but they realize that life's too short to, to go down this road. And they treat people with honor and respect, despite what they, the people around them believe. How do they do that? How is that happening? And here we have the psalmist. He's working through us. He's not happy by any means. He's frustrated. But if you go through and you, can, you continue in this, in this psalm, look at what he's done. At first he kept quiet. He brought his anger and frustration to God. And then in verse 4, he says, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. I mean, he's pretty desperate. He's like, hey, how long is this going to last? I mean, he's almost saying, hey, it might be good for you to just take me out of here. Like, this is, I don't know if I want to stay here anymore. But he continues, he says, let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Now, something's happening in this little transition of being quiet, laying his anger before God, going, I am frustrated, I'm angry, I'm literally hot. And then he says, hey, give me perspective. That's what he's asking for. He's like, in, in relationship to who I am and in, in, in who you are, Show me, and David knows because he's wise, show me how short my life is. I'm acting right now like everything in this moment matters, but does it really? Show me that I'm, and he's really repeating truths that he knows, that my life is a mere handbreadth. I know that my life is short, that you are eternal, and I'm just a moment in time. He's, he's, he's all of a sudden becoming what I say, number three of this transition, he's humbled, and he's given a new perspective in God's present Presence. And what's happening and what you'll see kind of transition in the psalm is all of a sudden he's, he's realizing life's too short to be angry. Life's too short to, in this heightened state, 
waste my life on this, on these conversations, on these people that are driving me crazy, on this feeling of people don't like me anymore. I mean, it hurt David to go, I used to be liked. They used to sing songs about me. Saul killed thousands. I killed 10,000s. And they sang them in the streets. And now people hate me. And he's starting to realize, I go to bed at night and I ruminate and I think about what all these people are thinking. And my whole body's getting hot. I mean, have you ever thought about somebody that said something to you during the day, been in a conversation with somebody, and then it just got in your head and what they said, and you just play it over and over again? And one, you might be thinking, what did they mean by that? Like, maybe they didn't mean anything, and they're not thinking about you, but they've imprisoned you. They've got you in a box, and you can't sleep because you're so frustrated. Or you got in an argument, and you didn't say it the way that you, you didn't get, you didn't get your peace in, and they just humiliated you in front of people, and you go to bed at night, and you say, oh, uh, next time I see them, eh. you know, and you've got, they own you. What's David doing? He's, he's humbled in the presence of God. He's got a new perspective. But now he realizes, okay, life's too short. People aren't really, are these people really thinking about me day in, day out like I'm thinking about them? I'm, I'm no longer going to be in this prison because life is short. It's a mere hand breath in comparison to you. This anger is owning me and it shouldn't. He goes on, he says, everyone, listen to this. This is interesting, this whole transition. He's thinking about it for himself, and then he thinks about it a little bit differently. He says, hey, look, I'm not just a breath. Everyone's a breath, even those who seem secure. He's kind of talking about the people around him that's been talking smack about it. He's like, you know, they think they're, they got it all put together. But we're all under the same law. We all were created by the same sovereign God that is forever, and we are just an instant. He says, surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain, they rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. So now, not only does he have perspective on his own life and his own anger, but the world around him and the circumstances. He's like, God's bigger than this. God is sovereign and everything that's, that's happening is his. And everything is an instant. So what should my, where should my focus be? Should it be in the minutia of everyday life in the world? There's things I have to do. We all do doesn't mean we ignore everything and just kind of float around as Christians. We don't. We have to make money and we have to do stuff. But where that ends up in the pecking order of importance, he's getting it reevaluated. It's, it's all of a sudden, he's, the, the, the deck is getting reshuffled, not just for him, but for his circumstance. So number four, he reevaluates his situation with his new perspective. The people around him are subject to the same life, same laws of God. God controls all of it. Again, it goes back to the book of James. In James chapter 1, what does it say? It says, hey, people are going to cruise around and there's people that are making money. They're going to the markets. They're doing all the stuff. They're coming home with their wealth. They're buying new things. They're going to this place, to this town, to that place. And he says, what is your life? What is your life? It's but a vapor. It's but a handbreadth. It's but a, but a mist. Look, it was said many, many years before by the psalmist. James is just bringing it to the church. The psalmist is saying it before God, going, this is true about you. And James is going, it's pretty wise. I think we should say this to the church because the church is the one that's going to carry the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. Hey, guess what? Don't get stuck on the small stuff. Remember, God is big and you are small. He's humbled in the presence of God. He's right-sized in the presence of God. I'm nothing in comparison to you, but he knows that he's loved. I mean, the psalmist, he wrote Psalm 8, which says, you put the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, everything that I see, you created it. Who is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? 
but you love me. You know the hairs on my head. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He knows that he's special to God, but he's also micro in compared. So small, but precious in God's eyes. A good perspective. All of a sudden you see his perspective changing. Before he's mad, he's just looking around horizontally at everyone else. And all of a sudden now he's exhaling and he's looking up. He's seeing who God is, how big he is, how brief life is and what he's wasting his time on. And it's changing the way that he's thinking. Now, there's a big transition that comes here in verse 7. Check this out. He says, but now, Lord, what do I look for? And it's starting to click right here. My hope is in you. My desperation, everything that I'm looking for is in you. And then he says, save me. He's asking the only one that can. Save me from my sins. Save me from my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. He's like, I don't want to be in this situation anymore. But save me. Number five, he repents and asks for salvation from sin. I love this. My hope is in you. And really, when you're repenting, you're basically, everybody's like, repentance always feels like I was naughty and now I've got to be not naughty anymore and I've got to, you know, hang my head and go home to to Jesus. But really, the the essence of repentance is I've woken up. Uh, I was was in the, I thought thought something else was going to save me. I thought my hope was in something else. I thought my job was my hope. I thought the approval of other human beings was going to save me. I thought something else was going to to fix this existential nagging that I have. Maybe being famous, maybe being rich, maybe being awesome at something was going to fix it. And I realized that I've made something more important. I've got another savior. And now I realize you're the only one that can save me from forsaking that. That sin of believing something else was better than you. That's repentance. Repentance is really coming home to a loving father that's got his hands wide open. I mean, it's the essence of the story of the prodigal son is I can't wait. Not only that, the father's running out to meet you and wrap his arms around you and say, I've been waiting for you to come home. That's repentance. We always think about repentance as ooh, this heavy thing. It's a, the most beautiful thing in the world. It's coming home. It's it's wrapping your arms around Jesus going, I can't believe you love me. I'm a trash pile. Look at what I've done with my life and you still, you would die for me? You'd bleed out on a, a garbage dump for me? I can't believe it. And Jesus is chasing you. He's the one running after you. He's the one climbing up mountains, knocking down doors to find you, to come after you. That's repentance realizing that, waking up to the reality that Jesus loves you so much and there's nothing that can save you from your transgressions and your sin. There's nothing that can take you out of the pit that you're in. Jesus saves and nothing else does. That's five. He repents and asks for salvation from the only one. The approval of other people, the approval of of Sheba and all of these people that are around you, David, they don't matter. The only hope that you have is in me. He goes on in verse 9. And we'll go, we're getting to six. Can you believe six of these? You know, usually there's a two points, three points in a sermon. You guys got six. Bonus. You don't have to come next week. Just kidding. Nine. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Now there's a recognition of everything that's happening is not other people's issue. God is sovereign. He's the one that does everything. So he begins to, again, he's vertical in his relationship with God now. He's saying, you remove this scourge from me. 
I'm overcome, overcome by the blow of your hand. You're the one who has put me in this sanctifying sorrow, in this sanctifying suffering situation. I know that that's what you do, and I know that that's a good thing, but this is wearing me out. He says, when you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Again, he's just spouting off the truths that he knows, that we're brief here on planet Earth, and that God is the one that is the judge of all things, not David. But one thing that we see there is he's, he's in his repentance. He's no longer assessing blame vertically or horizontally to anybody else. He's owning his sin. And if, I mean, there's a, that's one of the best lessons for me in here. Number, just the idea of number five, this repentance and then the ownership of my problems start with me. They start with me. Like we like to blame other people, the people that are around us, the people that have rejected us, the people, and certainly people have sinned against us on planet earth. But you can't do anything about that. God can, but you can own your portion in any conflict, in any argument, in anything that you're walking through with another human being relationally. You can say, you know what? Because I have a tendency to go, yeah, I did something, but they did, but she did, but you made me, I got angry because you made me angry. You know, you lost my wallet. You know, I mean, you're the one that did it. Instead, to be quiet and just say, you know, this is my, I own, I'm owning my transgression. I did this. And I'm here because God is just. I'm in this position. Now, he has mercy and he is the only one that can save me from my transgressions, but he is just. And I'm here because this is the consequences of the world that God set up. He's leading us to life and away from death. And I'm an idiot. And this is how I ended up here. That's own, it's owning your situation and your circumstance rather than blaming. I mean, I tend to blame, you know, who did that? You know, going backwards rather than moving forward. I love that he does that. And then he goes on in, in verse 12. He says, hear my prayer, Lord. So now he's praying. And he's praying with a pure heart. It's, it's, it's fantastic. He says, listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, as a stranger as all my ancestors were. He's saying, I, I want to put myself back in that place of separating myself from the rest of the world. I don't want to be like them. I don't be, want to be the ones that are pining for others' approval, that are trying to figure out how to get political clout. I want to be a foreigner. I want to be set apart as the way that you wanted us to be from the beginning. And then he says, look away. I love the honesty in this, this prayer in 13. He says, look away from me that I may enjoy my life again. In other words, he's like, can you, can you take the pressure hand off of me? You know, it's like dad's putting a little bit too much weight on my shoulder. He says, before I depart, name no more. Before I die, can I just get a break? Now this, I love this. This is number six. It's the desperate ask. He's finally to the point where he's in the right place to ask. And I love that he's now his heart. Like I said, the Psalms put us in a position. They align our heart with God's heart. So in the beginning, when he was hot and looking horizontally at everybody else, he wasn't really ready to ask for anything. Because when you're, when you're in your flesh, you don't ask for the right thing. Like we want stuff from God. You pray, but it's usually you're praying about things that you need that are not aligned with the heart of God. And we're like, why didn't he answer my prayer? I, all I asked for was a massive sweaty pile of money. I just wanted it. And you're wondering why he didn't get it. But as his heart was getting aligned with God, all of a sudden he goes from the horizontal, looking at everybody else, blaming everyone else, needing everybody else's approval, to looking up at the only God that can save him, the only thing that can save him and that can 
can bring him hope, he realizes you are the one that can save me. You're the one that can, can change things for me. And then in, in honesty and not so much in the flesh, but vertical, humbled and repentant before God, he says, can you just give me a break? And it's okay to ask that. Like, I think in purity, we can say, God, please, I don't understand why I'm here. Why am I in pain? Why am I suffering? Why is my family, what, what, why is this happening? Pure-hearted, he asked, desperate asks, God, save me, God, save me. This is the moment of tears. And so some of us, were so afraid of tears. Because we, we don't want, don't let them see you cry. I talked about last week. Like, dudes, don't cry, you know. We're so worried about being that broken before God, that vulnerable before God. But we need to be in that. That is where salvation is found is when we finally, that's the beautiful thing about the gospel is when we raise the white flag of surrender before Jesus, we've won. That's where the victory is found. When Jesus breathed his last, hands nailed, to a cross, feet nailed to a cross, seeming to be the end, seeming to be the ultimate surrender. He defeated death and sin for all time in bleeding out. And he's leading us to the same surrender, this suffering Savior. In tears, it's okay to surrender your tears to Jesus. Say, God, I need you. God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. There's no one but you. There's nothing I need but you. There's nothing that I experience in life that brings me fulfillment but you. You're the one that can change everything for me. You're the one that can wipe away my sin. You're the one that can change me from the inside out. You deserve all my worship and praise. Weeping and crying before God. If you don't value tears, check this out. Researchers have established this about crying. I didn't know. You know, Guys, if you're worried about your man card, you better put it in your pocket. Crying releases oxytocin and endogenous opioids, also known as endorphins. In other words, you get high when you cry. I didn't know. It's fantastic. These feel-good chemicals help ease both physical and emotional pain. I love this. I, it, it makes me think of, of Dave. Um, I don't know why. Um, that's why he's so handsome. Uh, my man knows how to cry. But his heart's right to ask. He's bringing forth his tears. And I love what Spurgeon says about this psalm and where David ends up in repentance before God. He said, tears have ever had a great prevalence with God. Christ used these sacred weapons when with strong crying and tears, he prayed to his father in Gethsemane. Did you hear that? Called tears, sacred weapons. That's pretty manly, if you ask me. He says, you know, he prayed to his father in Gethsemane, and we heard that in that he feared the humanness of Jesus. Sinner, that, that there is such potency and penitent tears that thou mayest prevail with God if thou wilt come to him weeping over thy sin. Do you cry over your sin? Do you cry over your lostness and brokenness? And pleading the precious blood of Christ. Thy tears cannot merit heaven or wash away sins. But if thou dost penitently grieve over them and trust in the great atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, thy tearful prayers have, shall have a gracious answer of peace. And I love, as he quotes, if you move down a little further in the quote, he, he's 
quoting um, Paul Bunyan, but it's, it's amazing. He says, He who knows how to weep his heart out at the foot of the cross shall not be long without finding mercy. It's where I want to be. Humble enough to fall to my face and weep my heart out in front of the cross. And then he says this, and I love it. Tears are diamonds that God loves to behold. That's beautiful repentance and a desperate ask before the only God that can save us and rescue us. Let's stand. You know, I don't know where you're, everybody's, you know, coming from today and what what you've walked in with, but I can tell you there's a God that is so desperate to meet you. He really is. And I I hesitantly even use the word of, of God being desperate, but I just feel like as an emotional God, and as you read the Psalms, and they're his words, that he, he is, he's not just sitting back with his arms going, I guess I'll, you know, figure out how to go chase these jokers. No, like a good father, he's, he's, he's emotional. He's, he's, he's desperate to see you wake up, to see you in a place of, of asking. He's just ready for you to ask. To, to get, get away from the horizontal and get vertical with him and go, Dad, I need you. I need you. And he is the only one, the only one that can save and rescue you. And he's here today. Jesus is, is here, present here in this room. He's alive right next to you, engaging your heart. You didn't know why you were here, maybe? And right now, you feel the presence of God. That is the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit pursuing you. Saying, you're mine. You're mine. I've come to rescue you. I've come to say, you've been asking. I've heard. And I've come to save you. God, we love you. We know that you are the only one that saves. You are the only one that rescues. You are the only one that redeems. God, we just proclaim for our own heart by the power of your Holy Spirit you sweep across this room, that you wake dead hearts and bring them to life, bring my heart to life again and again. Just come, Holy Spirit, just come in Jesus' precious name.